Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. What's going on? How you doing? I'm great. We got a new federal budget to talk about. and um, th- I don't know why that makes you great, but okay. <laughs> no, I guess that doesn't make me – I mean, I, I'm a bit ambivalent to it, so maybe that's the answer to your question is I'm doing ambivalent. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing okay. Uh, as I said last week, I'm in Toronto traveling. I'm flying out. As soon as we're finished recording this. (laughs) And I got to say, like, I feel like, I don't know, there's just like a heaviness, a malaise uh, over the city, like, and people right now. And I just, you know, it's just a stark reminder of how we're like not, the systems that are like built around us are not meant to make us thrive. Like people are uh, not doing well. And that is heartbreaking. Hmm. Yeah, I've definitely felt the same thing while I've been out of my bubble here. I did a talk um, a couple of days ago for some union activists, and it was really interesting because the talk was on political messaging. And there's a lot of unions that are really hoping to put all of their effort into getting Doug Ford unelected. Obviously, as you know, that makes a lot of sense. But you know, I, I made the point in Ontario, like Ontarians need to expect that Doug Ford's going to win. I mean, there's, there's, you know, we can engage in wishful thinking. We can put all of our effort into campaigns, but it's also important, I think, to be realistic. That helps, I think, ground ourselves so that we don't get like even more depressed and disappointed. And, and I actually find it quite useful to be realistic because then you can start thinking of other possibilities of like extra parliamentary action and organizing in different ways and blah, blah, blah. And it was really interesting to see how people reacted to the talk. Like it was one of the most engaged ones I've ever done. And it was a small group. I mean, there was about 35 people there. But the thing that um, that came up like the strongest was um, the reaction to my appeal to left-wing people to be authentic. Hmm. And I think that that really, for me, like pointed out what kind of moment we're in right now where we have this complete lack of authenticity from all of our political leaders, even public health officials, even those public health officials that tried to turn themselves into celebrities or that were had celebrity uh, thrust upon them during this pandemic. And now it's just like, oh, my God, you know, they've like everyone with any power has just gone back to pretending that nothing's happening. And You can tell that it's driving people's mental health into the ground, that it's making people really sad and really desperate. And I hope that I hope that that there's ways that people can find themselves out of that, because there are ways to find yourself out of that. And one of those ways is to, I think, divorce like what you're experiencing every single day from the fact that your politicians are lying to you, the fact that your politicians don't care about your life, that they're not making things better, that they're always t- choosing the wrong thing. And I, like it's it's actually kind of liberating, I think, when you start to see life like that, because then you're not tied to every single time there's a new announcement. Like, I mean, the Toronto Star just uh, found how many tests, rapid tests, went to private schools in, in, in Ontario rather than to public schools and prisons and a couple of other public instances. And, and and this is something we've known. I mean, I wrote about that um, in Alberta specifically and Ontario back uh, a year ago. Um, and, and I can just feel, again, it's one more reason for people to be thrown into the depths of despair because of this incredibly incompetent government. And I think in that, 
like that this is where we do have to try and be authentic and look for authentic voices and say what we really feel and really express it as, as loud and as strongly as we can. And even if that's not a help, if, if what you're saying you don't think is helpful because you're just, I don't know, depressed or complaining about it, like you still need to do that. We still need to express ourselves in that way and get it out. Here, 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 here. Um, I really appreciate that. Yeah. So, um, fuck. Uh, I, I mean, I don't really know what else to add uh, to what you've just said, but I mean, that's just where all of this is coming from. I mean, you know, there is an impact that the way that the, our societies are organized that has directly on the person and on our communities. And uh, that impact is not good. And um, I, you know, I see promises from political parties and, you know, institutions like uh, colleges and universities about, you know, focusing on mental health and having new mental health uh, programs. And as we've discussed before, you know, you can you can create all the the sort of post initiatives that you can, like post having a, a mental health um, uh, issue. But we also have to, like, focus on the root of the problem, which is the way our societies are organized. And it's getting worse and worse. And uh, COVID has certainly accelerated things. Um, and so on that uh, super happy note, let's uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe dole out some gratitude here. Yeah, well, and that's the, that's the only way to fight back against a lot of these forces is to come together and be together, uh, seek out seek out communities, seek out spaces where we can be together. And this podcast isn't exactly a space where we can be together because, of course, we're still not physically together. But um, certainly thank you to the folks that help us put the show on every week. And so, you know, don't forget to share it uh, with your networks. Don't forget to post about episodes online and, and help other people discover Sandy Nora. But specifically this week, thank you so much to everybody who donated for the first time or who changed their donation, specifically Nicole. Moose, Jeffrey, Nerea, Aaron, someone, and Jill. Thank you all so much for your support. We really, really appreciate it. Okay, so we're obviously going to be talking about the federal budget today, but there's a couple things that I wanted to raise before we get into the substance of that um, insubstantial document. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I'd say that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, so Kevin Yard uh, is is an elected MPP, and as you know, there's a provincial um, election coming up. Uh, he's black. He is, you know, uh, during the last election, one of the people that uh, the Ontario NDP held up to say, you know, we have the most black people elected. We have a black caucus for the first time in uh, Ontario politics. And, uh, you know, it is it is time to start campaigning again. Election time is coming in Ontario. And uh, the I mean, the party for something has happened and the party has, I suppose, decided not to support his reelection in in allowing a nomination to to go through in a way that they don't do for other sitting MPPs. Uh, and, um, yeah, he will not be running again because, um, he did not win the NDP nomination in his writing. Okay, sorry, sorry, So I, I need you to back up because I don't know much about how the, this works at the part, at the, at the local level. So if someone, if there's a writing with a sitting in MPP already, they don't have a race. 
Not generally, no. Really? Mm-hmm. Huh. Okay, because, I mean, it, what I'm used to with Quebec Solidaire in Quebec is, of course, you have a race. Mm-hmm. You you have the same exact uh, process every single time, even if you've got a very strong candidate or a very strong person that's been in office for many years. But, oh, that is so fascinating and kind of silly because um, you don't want to have a situation like this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, obviously, this is... Uh, you know, really frustrating. But I think one of the things that it um, shows is just how, uh, you know, I, I've been, I don't, I don't really know how to um, articulate this in the best way, but uh, just really frustrated with how people use black people to say something about their organization. And then, you know, like to, to use proximity to black people or to use something like, oh, we've created this black caucus. And then throughout the time of their existence, muzzle them from discussing certain issues, perhaps defunding the police. I'm not saying that that 100 percent happened. I just think that there is some strong suggestions that it may have from people that I know. Um, and and then getting rid of them as uh, as soon as um, it is no longer politically expedient to be connected to black people in that way. And I, yeah, I'm just like, you know, fuck you and your anti-blackness. That really sucks. Uh, Obviously, there's a conversation to be had about broader, like, uh, should they be having nominations all the time? For sure, for sure. But to do this to this one specific person after you used uh, this caucus in this way, it's just uh, fucking tired of this shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, totally. Totally. And I, I, I hadn't been paying attention to this, but I saw his name pop up for the first time and I was shocked that I didn't even I didn't even realize he'd been elected. So, I mean, Ontario NDP, I know that you employ certain MPs here and there, um, but but generally it's a very uh, centrally controlled caucus. There's no fucking point in doing that. <laughs> like, let 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 your members like, you know, talk about the issues that brought them into politics in the first place. But, I mean, there's also a whole bunch of other um, nomination fuckery that's been going on, too, that maybe we should do an episode on that as, as this continues to go on, because I can think of two other uh, ridings where the local um, the, the local group wanted one candidate and the party imposed a second. And it's like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, you're going to lose, so why are you, like, <laughs> wasting your time with this kind of shit? Apparently, so the NDP does allow um, uh, MPPs to be challenged for nominations, says Horvath. And, uh, you know, this was um, an interview that happened uh, by, uh, you know, if they pass a vetting process. And the issue is that generally people who are contesting uh, sitting MPPs uh, don't pass that vetting process. Well, of course not. What the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay, so there's that. There's another issue uh, to discuss very briefly, one that you and I were once quite familiar with. Uh, So a listener has reached out and asked us to just opine on what is happening at uh, McGill's SMU, the Student Society at McGill University, and uh, the University of Toronto Student Society, Student Unions, which is uh, the University of Toronto Graduate Students Union and the University of Toronto Students Union, uh, with respect to votes that they have had um, to on Palestinian solidarity and institutions' responses. So, uh, Nora, I'm going to tell you what's going down at these institutions. Stop me when it feels like you're in 2007. Um, Already kind of does. Basically, <laughs> uh, Already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So basically, uh, the Student Society at McGill University had a referendum recently um, on adopting a Palestinian solidarity policy, which included support for boycotts, divestments, and sanctions. Um, The University of McGill responded with, uh, like, you are making students feel unsafe sort of rhetoric, which is, like, fascinating in a world with what's just happened with Russia Uh Um, and uh, and is uh, threatening to pull um, pull funding from uh, from SMU. And uh, they have an, an, an agreement between uh, the Student Society at McGill University and the University of McGill, which uh, states that if there is some a dispute of this kind and the university decides that they're going to no longer fork over the union dues that every student pays to go into their democratic um, institution – Um, that they pay into for the advocacy that they get on campus, that there is a joint organization, like a joint process where uh, McGill and the Students Union uh, somehow manages the finances. Because, of course, pulling finances from an organization like a Students Union, which provides like health and dental plans for its members and a lot of necessary services, could be catastrophic for the students on campus. So um, they are, would be like setting up this sort of administration sort of uh, way of managing the students' union. So they're embroiled in that conflict right now. With respect to U of T, the University of Toronto Students' Union continues to, um, uh, you know, pass kind of light uh, support for Palestinian solidarity. So they, they passed a motion that is kind of unclear as to what it means. It's like we will support uh, Palestine, you know, like there's nothing concrete in it. So I don't think that they have had like a direct... Um, threat from the institution, although the University of Toronto Graduate Students Union has uh, been more clear about how they will support, how they will extend their Palestinian solidarity, which includes support for BDS campaigns. And the University of Toronto has this, like, this thing that they set up unilaterally back when I was there um, that is, you know, it's called, like, the Student Society something, something we decide whether you are good or bad <laughs> and, and they get together and they're like okay the graduate students union is bad and they have decided to remove from the graduate students union the exact amount of funding that the graduate students union put into its palestinian solidarity efforts hmm. last year hmm. which is somewhere in somewhere in the realm of eleven thousand dollars which uh, may sound like um, short change to, to most people, but for a small students' union like the Graduate Students' Union at the University of Toronto, it's um, quite a bit of money. Uh, and I think that is also meant to be a warning to the University of Toronto Students' Union that if they go farther in what their support is, I mean, they already took a BDS uh, motion back when I was there. don't know if anybody knows that. Maybe they're not operating on it. But <laughs> in any case, um, I think it's supposed to serve as a warning to them uh, as well. So what do you think, Nora? Does that feel like a time warp? Yeah, it's like punk music. It comes back every 13 years. It's like, really? Uh, This again? And and especially in the moment where we're in where this idea of sanctions has become much more mainstream as we're looking at an aggressive nation like Russia uh, attacking and terrorizing uh, a next door and smaller nation like Ukraine. Um, 
I, there is an interesting difference between McGill and U of T, and that is law, right? There's actually more legal protections for the student unions in Quebec than there are in Ontario. But McGill administration will find a way to fucking do whatever the, what, what they want. And I, I imagine this joint committee management structure is a way to kind of like respect the law, but then also try and take away power from the students' unions. So uh, solidarity with folks on both campuses and, and everywhere. I mean, these are not isolated uh, struggles that this this tends to happen um, in, in it kind of like cascades across student unions, across um, provincial borders when it when when these flashpoints start to happen in some schools, uh, you know, that the university presidents are talking to one another. Yes, you're right. And I think that something has happened at the University of um, British Columbia AMS as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so um, good luck. Uh, t- you know, anybody who's on campus, like don't ever feel like your university president has that much power. Um, they're mostly a symbol head a figurehead and you can fight them <laughs> and you should. <laughs> so um, all it takes is a lot of organizing and a lot of solidarity. And I know that the activists fighting for justice for Palestinians uh, know that and um, that you have won before and you will win again. I like symbol head. <laughs> symbol head. <laughs> um, Sandy, I, I have one other thing I want to mention that I just think is so interesting, and I don't have a fully formed thought about this yet, but um, there was... I love that. I know, I know. There was this video that came out of uh, Pierre Polyev being at... um, I don't know if he was at UBC or at Simon Fraser, but it was like a joint event. So students from both schools were at this event. And Polyev has been um, criticized for crowds that are uh, older, crowds that are very white, um, in some cases like 100% white, um, like in places where you wouldn't expect that at all. And um, he posted this video of him at uh, this student event in British Columbia in Vancouver. And uh, the crowd is like very, very, very male and very white. And so I make some comment and I post this online. What's very fascinating, I mean, that's not the story because that's fucking everybody knows this about Pierre Polyev. But what's really interesting is that the number of responses that I'm getting from from uh, hacked accounts uh, is making me go, hmm, this is very interesting. And so by hacked accounts, I mean accounts of very low followers um, who have um, been around for like more than a decade. So I'm getting responses from people whose accounts were created in 2009, 2010, or 2011, um, which is always like a red flag that it's a hacked account, that this is not someone who's just been tweeting since fucking 2009 about how much they fucking hate the vaccine. And that's the common thing when you go to every one of these feeds. So first of all, I've got no mutuals with them, which isn't entirely surprising. Like I don't always, like, you know, you don't always have mutuals with people who are in very different political spheres. Although Canada is pretty small that it does, I mean, usually when I'm talking to a real person, I at least have some kind of mutual connection, but fine. Okay, so that might not be um, an indicator. But on top of that, they all just have like spammy content about how much they hate vaccines in, in their feeds as you go to them. So it's like old and very obviously hacked accounts, all having spammy, obsessive uh, Twitter feeds uh, focusing on, um, on on vaccines and no mutuals. I'm wondering, hmm, what are the odds that the, that the Polyever campaign is employing an army of bots mm. to juice the support that they have online? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Very curious. It sounds yeah, like, it sounds very. like yes, and it also I mean you raising that like given um, what happens anytime the liberals do anything <laughs> down 
many. Um, I mean, maybe they're just fan accounts, and uh, but it does seem like there are some bots mixed in there. Maybe that that is just mm-hmm. becoming a standard way for certain political operatives in Canada to operate. It'd be great to get a look behind the curtain on that because it is very, very strange. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess my last thought on this is just that, you know, it looks like Polly Ever's campaign is, and I like calling him Polly Ever. I mean, that's what he calls himself. And it's like, okay, I mean, that's not how you say it, but fuck whatever. Um, but his campaign uh, <laughs> is, is seemingly like the strongest one online, right? It's the one we're seeing the most about. He's filling rooms of people. And, um, and and right now he looks like the sure the sure bet in terms of winning this this campaign. But if a lot of the support is fucking manufactured and not real, then it will not translate into the real world in the way that it looks like it might translate into the real world. So people should definitely pay attention to that. And people should definitely pay attention to um, you know, if you're if you're saying anything about the polyever campaign and you get a barrage of replies from people, look at who they are and look at when their accounts were made and look at how many tweets that they've sent since their account was made. There's a lot of ways to, to kind of get an idea on whether or not something is a fake camp- uh, a fake account. And uh, I would bet money on there being a lot of fake accounts among the poly ever fucking support team. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, I think that brings us to the budget. The budget. Yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, it turns out we were wrong. The NDP liberal agreement was totally useful and brought us, um, you know, great socialist infrastructure. (laughs) Well, it did deliver $5.3 billion in dental care promises. Yeah. And then pharmacare, right? Because that was part of it too. No, 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 nothing else. (laughs) Literally no other aspect of (laughs) That uh, agreement at just $5.3 billion for dental care spread over a bunch of years. Which is stunning to me. I mean, gosh, it yes, as somebody did point out to me on, tw- on Twitter, um, the NDP liberal agreement does say that they will uh, take steps towards pharmacare um, and pass an act, a pharmacare act by 2023. So it's like early, but it's also super late because this was a promise in 2019, the liberal platform for 2019, one of the reasons that they were elected. So it is super late. And also, why would you make an agreement on something that was promised fucking years ago and was broken? But I digress. The budget sucks, man. The budget fucking blows. <laughs> but well, before before we get into how much it blows, and it definitely does, I I want to read you something um, about the drug promise. Okay, so the government of Canada will work with provinces, territories, and other partners to develop a vision and mandate for a national formulary of prescribed drugs. Um, Health Canada will get $35 million over four years uh, to establish a Canada Drug Agency Transition Office to support the development of this vision. Sandy, do you know what I'm reading from? Uh, A press release. Just take a guess. No, it's not a press release, no. Um, But maybe guess like time and place. What kind of document might this be from? Ooh, okay. Time and place. Is it a budget document from... A, I don't know, um, 
from a previous year? Yeah, that's exactly right. It is. Interesting. Say more. Okay. Um, so I'll just go on. Uh, it, you know, we've got stuff like um, no Canadian should choose between paying for their prescriptions, putting food on the table, um, the, uh, to make uh, prescriptions more affordable and accessible. Government of Canada intends to create the Canada Drug Agency, the national formulary, and a national strategy for high-cost drugs for rare diseases. So and is this 2020 budget? No. Budget 2020? No, no. Because think of, think of what was going on in tw- budget 2020 time. Oh, of course. Budget 26, 2017. No, no. It was, it was just after that and before 2020. It was 2019. So really? it was the last okay, there we go. normal. The, last, the budget, it was the budget, it was the election budget. It was the last normal budget as well that we had before the pandemic. And so when I was writing my own uh, 2022 budget analysis, I was like, oh, let's go back to where we were at. And of course, 2019 is the only one you can go to because um, like everything else is fucked, like pandemic fucked. And uh, so it's like, oh, yeah, I completely forgot that Pharmacare was a major plank of the 2019 budget. Exactly as you say, election in the air and all this kind of thing. And it sounds um, like more action oriented than the fucking liberal NDP plan. Yeah. Wow. Look at that. That's really fucking f- infuriating. Yeah. And I mean, we've talked about previously how like history doesn't seem to exist in Canadian politics. It's like the slate is wiped clean every single time there needs to be an election. And so... Um, this feels like, again, one of those times. Great. Uh, fuck. That's very annoying. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I couldn't believe it when I found it. And, and it's like, and, and I, like, I don't know what happened with this stuff, right? So one of, the, one of the, the big promises is that should have actually been implemented by now. I mean, this is where fucking Canadian journalists just like, we just don't have enough of them and they don't have the, the, the directions to go back and figure out what the fuck happened to some of the stuff. But like, they committed up to $1 billion over two years, starting in 2022, of course, uh, if, to get Canadians access to drugs if they have rare diseases. It's like, was, is, did, is this happening? Did this happen? A uh, billion dollars. Like, that's not nothing. That's a lot of fucking money. Like, I guess rare, rare disease listeners of the pod, like, get in touch with us and let us know. Um, did you get your, your, your drugs covered? D- did something happen on this? Or did this just get swept away by the ocean of COVID that just changed everything about about that history that you were talking about? Okay, so there's that. Um, did you also see how um, you know the housing crisis is going to be solved? <laughs> yes, I did, and so I think um, let's let's be clear. This was the biggest part of the of the budget was housing. So yes, Sandy. The crisis has been solved. The crisis has been solved, and there's a few ways that they've solved it. But my favorite way is that they have um, they've created a new piggy bank for everyone. That's going to be, you know, optioned off to everyone a new piggy bank um, that people can use a new tax free savings account to add to the other two tax-free savings accounts that Canadians already have. But no, this is a tax-free savings account that is specific to buying your first home to add to the RSP home buyer's plan that is specific to buying your first home. But 
nor the way that they're doing it, which is going to be really, really amazing, you know, is they're saying, hey, um, you are having problems affording housing. Don't worry. I'm going to give you a piggy bank, but you can't use that other piggy bank that we gave you earlier. Um, in addition to this piggy bank, you get to choose which piggy bank you want, <laughs> it's just, which is ridiculous, especially if you're like, hey, let me take a look at how much I can save in these piggy banks. Um, one, that's not going to help me pay for a down payment on a home. And two, hey, the problem is I don't have any money in the first place. What the fuck is a piggy bank going to do for me? And three, hello, there are so many more problems with the housing crisis uh, beyond people being able to, to save for their first home. There's also issues with rent. There's also issues with people having shelter whatsoever. But this is the main way that the government has decided to be like, we are your partners in unaffordable housing, a piggy bank. That's what it is. <laughs> They've also implemented things to try to stop uh, uh, foreign buyers, like this idea that um, the, the issue with housing is just, it's the, the problem is from outside our borders. So we're going to stop the, those from outside of our borders from taking advantage of our housing system. It is it, like, it's capitalism, man. It's not just, like just foreign buyers, but also the, the rules around that program, I guarantee you it's not going to do what they're saying it's going to do. But I guess at least they get to say foreign buyers a bunch of times uh, in the news. Mm -hmm. And I, that's mm -hmm. supposed to make the them look good. Well, and did you see how many foreign buyers actually make up this, um, our housing purchasing market or whatever? Like what percentage of, of, tell of me, buyers? Tell me, how much is it? Well, in Ontario, at least, it's 3.3% uh, of purchasers are foreign. Of course and, it is. <laughs> and if you look at the details, uh, this is awesome. So they're banning foreign ownership of non-recreational residential property. So commercial properties out and recreational properties out. So that that means, you know, summer homes or cottages or uh, condos that are like your tourist condo, I guess, maybe if you want to, if you come to Toronto a lot or you go to Vancouver a lot, you have a tourist condo. So those are all exempt. And interestingly, when this was leaked the day before, uh, because there was like basically the whole housing plan was leaked the day before the budget. So there were reporters had had a bit of information to write about this. And pretty much everywhere was saying, but don't worry, um, there are ex exemptions for people who have permanent residence or international students. And you look at the the actual way that they've written it. There are not exemptions for international students. Uh, international students seem to be actually included in not being allowed to, to, to buy property unless they are, quote, on the path to permanent residency or, quote, they have special circumstances. Um, and I think that's what really does that mean? <laughs> interesting. Well, I, what, one of the things that it for sure means is, um, you know, most international students are not wealthy. Most international students are like, you know, average people with not a ton of money. But there is a class of international student that is extremely wealthy that are like the children of like the global elite, right? And they go to the best schools. And I imagine what this means is that you can be approved if you're like among this global elite to buy a condo or to buy a penthouse or to buy like some sort of property wherever your kid is going to school to to make sure that they live there. And the reason why I think that is because I, I I knew a couple of international students when I was at, at school who were extremely wealthy and who I knew had like 
help from federal agents to be able to get past certain red tape and to be given actually fast track status and this kind of thing. And so that special circumstances, I imagine, will skew towards the the, the small tier of international students that are extremely wealthy. Huh. Very. That would be my guess. Very unsurprising if that's the case. Uh, We should keep an Mm -hmm. eye on that and, and find out. There's one other thing in the housing thing. I don't know if you caught this, that they're going to stop house flipping. Really? How did, okay, I did actually see that, but how I did not look into how they plan to do that. Do you have the specifics on that? I, I do. Um, and so they're going to stop house flipping, um, except if you have a life circumstance, that means that you have to flip your house. So that could be a divorce, a new job, a kid, a life circumstances, you know, I don't know, the desire to make more money, because if your job is fucking property management, then <laughs> you could probably make the argument that you got to got to sell this. But they created a window uh, where you cannot flip, um, where you can't flip your house. And that's going to be what cools the market. Um, and that window is only 12 months. So that just means that people have to wait till month 13 before they flip their property, which considering how much money how is in the housing market right now. How long does a renovation cost? How long yeah. does a re- renovation take? Like, Great question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm not an expert in home renovation, but I feel like it takes some time. <laughs> it, um, it does take some time. I mean, if you were really lucky, you could get it done in a couple of months, like a, like four months. But telling people that they have to sit on the property for 12 months and then they can just sell it again at month 13 seems like not going to do very much. Wow. Um, okay. So the budget, um, it, so far as I can tell, based on what's um, been talked about here, there's going to be um, a lot of um, money being put towards the establishment of new bureaucracy to dole out uh, programs mm-hmm. like um, this new tax-free savings account to administer the the exceptions and so on around the this foreign buyers um, uh, initiative and behind uh, this no house flipping thing, meaning they are spending tons and tons and tons of money creating bureaucracy for things that aren't ultimately going to solve or make even a dent in the real housing issues that are facing people every day. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, but but they, they wow. are promising. I mean, good thing it's a minority government. Oh, wait. (laughs) They are promising a $500 check to people who are struggling. And uh, if you want more details on that, the budget says that the specifics and delivery method of giving out this $500 will be announced at a later date. (laughs) I I can't believe how popular this shit is becoming. This like, we're just going to pay citizens. We're just going to give citizens a nominal amount of nothing money um, uh, that... Ultimately, it's like, okay, maybe you can take one and a half grocery trips, depending on how big your family is. Uh, And like, what is that going to do? What is that going to do? Like, you have to shift around the services that you've got and stop implementing these skeezy schemes um, or people are going to continue being destitute. It's just, it feels so obvious. And I'm like, who are the people around the tables and what conversations are they having that justifies this bullshit? It's absolute uh, it's just it's so fucking uh, i hate it yeah um okay defense defense spending 
Yes, defense spending. So um, they got that injection. Uh, it's $8 billion extra dollars being sent to national defense to do things like secure Canada's north and um, root out, like, uh, practices within the armed forces like fitness tests that discriminate against gender diverse individuals and women. Um, that was a little kind of footnote in, in one of the budget uh, uh, explainers. Um, <laughs> so I don't know how much money that's going to cost. But of course, uh, money to Ukraine is separate and above this. And so then there's an, an additional $2.8 billion that's being sent to Ukraine in a mix of grants and loans through the IMF. Um, and just so people to put that into perspective, I mean, the last time that we were fully engaged in Syria and Iraq, we were also giving $2 billion. So it seems like Canada at any given moment can only commit $2 billion to some sort of like international conflict. So it's not far and above other con other conflicts that we've given to in the past. Um, but, uh, you know, this is money that they're promising immediately. And um the details for what it would be purchasing, of course, are not in the budget. It's just like for support uh, for support for Ukrainians. Perhaps that is one of the things we will discuss at an event that Nora and I have been organizing with a few great comrades. So um, folks, on April 23rd, which is a Saturday in the um, evening, we were thinking, but now I'm like, uh, evening in what time zone? We'll let you know. In, <laughs> in the evening, uh, in, in the most evening-ish time for uh, the time zones across uh, Canada, we will be having an event to discuss um, anti-war principles and to help people organize locally anti-war initiatives. So we're going to, you know, help you uh, come up with the sort of organizing tools that you might need in order to get together a coalition, um, a group of people who might want to do some analysis, a group of people who might want to help um, people on the ground who are stranded, um, just all of the things you should be thinking about both action-oriented and principally. Like, how do we think about um, what is uh, going on geopolitically, how that is having um, an impact on people uh, with respect to increased militarization and um, and the threat of World War III. Uh, all of that is stuff that uh, you've heard us talk about in the last couple of weeks. We're a little bit nervous about how little there is of an anti-war movement. And so we want to, if you've been like wondering to yourself, how can I, what can I do here? We're going to try to have an event where we can come up with that all together and help people um, with some of the underlying principles um, that'll help you figure that out. And so we're going to have some speakers who will be um, familiar with anti-war work because they were doing it in the um, two, the, the 2000s era uh, and uh, can help us figure out what to think about. Yes. that if, if that's the one good thing that comes out of this budget, Sandy, I think maybe we have to take back all of our criticism. That was not because of the budget, Nora. <laughs> you know this. I know, <laughs> I know. the budget. <laughs> yes. See you all. Uh, it's an online event. So April 23rd at even time, <laughs> even tide. <laughs> I'm thinking it's probably going to be like an 8 p.m., 5 p.m. situation, like 8 p.m. Yeah, Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, or maybe on the half hour. We'll see. But it'll be in that window. I have another question for you, Sandy, based on a graph that was in the budget. I'm not sure if you saw it. 
How many Canadians whose gross income is over $400,000 are paying 15% tax or less in Canada? I did see this graph, but the um, the number is ha- has escaped my head, but it's low. Yeah, and well, you have to add the number up. Uh, well, I think what you mean is it's probably higher than you'd think. Um, you, you have to add the number up because they break it out into four groups. And so there are 1.6% of Canadians making over $400,000 a year who are paying zero taxes. But the overall number, 27.8% of Canadians who make over $400,000 a year are paying 15% tax or less. Yes, yeah, that yeah, this is what I meant. Yes, it, it is surprising how 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 many of them are not paying higher than fifty percent, fifteen percent, when they're making that much money. Like there, there are nine point eight Canadians making four hundred thousand dollars or more per year that are only paying zero to five percent tax. Fifteen percent tax is the lowest tax bracket in Canada. That is what you make if you make. Uh, That is what you pay if you make $49,000 or less. And then from there, the tax percentage goes up until apparently hit rich. And then it's like, oh, all bets are off. So this was a little graph that was included. And um, of course, it's gotten no coverage um, from uh, journalists because I guess it's not news because this is just fact. Um, But I I think that that was like really important to point out that like there's a real inverted uh, tax situation going on where the richest people are paying the absolute less tax, the least amount of tax. And this budget does not try to close any gaps that might be facilitating this perverted expression of our progressive tax system. You must be lying because I do recall that Justin Trudeau's, one of Justin Trudeau's um, electoral promises uh, at some point in the past was a wealth tax. <laughs> yeah, the no, wealthy. I mean, you, I remember that promise, Nora. <laughs> Don't tell me <laughs> that I made that up. I feel like it's also in the agreement with the NDP too, isn't it? Like there was some language around taxation, and and there there are is there's like some very minor reforms to like business transparency, but they they're also like increasing the amount of capital that a small business can have before it gets bumped up to the regular corporate uh, income tax rate, which is 15%. So small businesses currently pay 9% up until um, they make, they have $15 million in capital employed in Canada is the language in the budget. And they're going to extend that to $50 million before they get bumped up to that 15% income tax rate. What? Yeah. Like what the fuck? Fuck, NDP, thank you for this. You fucking, what the fuck? That is stunning. It's almost like you're telling me we don't have a progressive taxation system in Canada. <laughs> no, and, and you know what? And, and not only do we not have a pro- progressive taxation system, we also have like uh, just unbelievable amounts of money that we send to very regressive things, like the $3.8 billion that has been promised to the critical minerals strategy. <laughs> Well, folks, if you were paying attention to the budget or you were hopeful for the budget to um, do some uh, uh, critical work around dental care and pharmacare and uh, other such things that were uh, promised, I'm sorry, <laughs> the, this is not what we got. But we, I think we knew that this was not what we were going to get, you know, when 
Um, this nothing election happened last year uh, when the NDP kind of gave up all of their power. You know, it tells the liberals that they don't need to do much in order to um, continue on as they've been continuing on. And the real story, the bigger story here is how much um, they've gotten away with um, putting into defense spending without much friction. Um, and also, um, I, you know, some of these uh, smaller um, uh, details that Nora's bringing up with respect to taxation that uh, really just uh, tells us a, a lot about what the underlying um, principles are um, of this party and how they want to see Canada organized and who they want to see Canada organized for. All of this kind of celebration around this being a budget uh, to make li life more affordable, especially with respect to housing, it's just fluff. It's just garbage. And it should be met uh, with, with that sort of critique.